Hello and welcome to the Crux of the Matter, the show by pastors for pastors. My name is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And this is Pastor Scott Stigmeyer. How are you doing today, Scott? I'm doing great, considering yeah. I, yeah, we just moved, as you know, we just moved to California. So. And what are you <laughs> like, doing like 48 in hours the grand ago. golden state of California, Scott? Um, right now, I'm, in, I'm basking in sunshine. <laughs> um, I'm really enjoying the, the, that element of things. Excellent. Um, Excellent. You know, I, um, I, I took a call to t- teach uh, bioethics and theology at Concordia University in Irvine. And, and I've moved here. My family is going to join me in a couple of weeks. Good. Good. Yeah. Well, this will make our um, how's the weather section kind of moot at this point, I expect. Yeah. So, yeah. So yours is It'll also be- make it easier for us. It'll make it a lot easier for us since we're on the same time zone now. Yeah. Yeah. That will be <laughs> useful. No question about it. Um, so uh, our topic for this week is going to be, we're in episode 22, and we're going to talk about every pastor's favorite topic. And that topic is strategic planning, long-range planning. Um my congregation is in the middle of a uh, a long range planning process. We've been we've been at it for uh, I don't know a number of months. I'm sure Scott that you've gone through at least one or more of these strategic planning processes. Um, when was the last time you did a strategic plan last uh, at uh, at Redeemer where you were? Yeah, we did we did sort of a major emphasis on strategic planning. Um, Gee, I guess it was three years ago now. I, that's even hard for me to believe because it seems like it was just last week. Hmm. But we we knew that we needed to do some changes with our facility and our grounds and and just a number of other things, our programming, our youth ministry. And so we decided instead of just attacking each of those things as individual items, we would get together as a congregation and try to figure out how these things would all flow and work as one big unit and so we did that about three years ago and have been implementing it. And it, I left, as you know, as I just said, but it would, it's almost time for them to do it again, just to kind of figure out where are we in the whole thing. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, back yeah. in Kenosha, I think I, um, we did at least one round of strategic planning with the congregation. And we did a couple rounds of strategic planning with our academy, with our school. Uh, we are, as I as I said, partway through a round of strategic planning here at our uh, here in Northern California. I think that this is something that pastors and congregations have kind of um, fallen into as a regular practice, especially in the last generation or more. Uh, and and I'll admit, Scott, I have kind of a love hate relationship to the whole thing. I kind of feel like it's it's a necessary evil. It's helpful or it can be helpful, but it also brings up what I guess I would call um, a lot of vocational ambiguity just in terms of what does it mean for a congregation, a local congregation to have a strategic plan? And then how do, how do we kind of fit that sort of thought process into the ongoing life of the church? Uh, It's, it's messy. No, no question about it. And I think it gets even more messy as our parishioners are very much in the mindset that this is what organizations do. 
is you have to have a strategic plan and then you're working on enacting that strategic plan to some degree or another all the time. No, I think so. I think some pastors and some churches also fall into the trap of thinking that developing a strategic plan is a means of grace itself. <laughs> yeah, that's a little um, bit awkward. That, you know, it? it is the main thing and everything else exists to serve it. Right, right. So how how does how does a good confessional Lutheran pastor approach strategic planning in a way that is actually helpful? What's your kind of basic mindset on this thing? You've done this a couple times. Uh, I mean, I'm always tempted to say my strategic plan is for Jesus to come before we're done with the plan. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and hopefully before we actually finish all of the meetings, because I'd hate to have to go through all of the meetings with the strategic plan. And then just before we start to kind of get to work, then he comes back and we're like, wait a minute, Jesus, don't come back now. We've got all of this stuff we've got to do. It's so important. That just doesn't seem right to me, Scott. Yeah, we can't let the well, we can't let the plan become sort of our God. And right. if as long as as long as it is in a servant role and not in a master role, I think we can do this. For me, and and I'm no expert at this, and maybe I do it wrong, but, but for me, it's just just about having some goals. Sure. You know, I, I, I just think it's helpful so that when I get up in the morning, I know what to do. And, and, you know, and of course I've got a hundred tasks on my list, but you have to prioritize tasks all sure. the time. And so if it's helpful to me at least, and I think it's helpful for the congregation, if we have some agreed upon goals, um, I, you know, these are not to be in addition, these are above and beyond word and sacrament ministry, but you know, it just, how do we implement the ministry of God's church in this place at this time? Right, um, right. you know, like I said, maybe we decide we want to have a youth director. Well, how are we going to afford that? How many kids do we really have? What kind of programs do we expect to, to see come out of that? If, you know, and, and, and so just creating goals and trying to manage steps towards achieving those goals. I don't think there's anything, I think that's actually very helpful where, where it becomes a problem is where you, like you just said, is where you kind of forget about the Holy spirit and forget about the means of grace, the gospel actually being what changes things. Then, then I think you've become just a business, another entrepreneur. Right. Right. Well, as I've tried to think through this process and as we've thought, thought through it here, it, it seems like there are uh, obviously with so many of these things, there are multiple levels to it. One level or one of those thought processes is going to be we as a congregation have to understand our own identity as a Lutheran congregation, um, as the people of God gathered in this place, hearing his hearing his word, receiving his sacraments. And then at the same time saying, okay, now what are the, what are the things that are going to be true at this place in every, in every Christian congregation? And then what are the things that are unique to this place? And how do those two interact? Because if my strategic plan interferes with the proclamation of the gospel and the means of grace, well, then that is a bad strategy. <laughs> but at the same time, if all I'm doing, I, I don't know, and this may be um, moving us into heresy here a little bit. Uh, and if there's any heresy, you can blame Scott and you can address <laughs> that to feedback at the crux of the matter dot net. That would be wonderful. Um, but at some point, 
the, I don't even know quite how to say it. Um, it's not that there is more than word and sacrament, but God does give, uh, give life and a particularity to any given place. So what the ministry is going to look like in Northern California is going to be different than it's going to be in Northern North Dakota. And, yeah. and that's not saying that God's word is different. That's saying that how, uh, what are the circumstances that are the same? How are they different? How do I kind of fit them together in a way that is going to make sense? And, and looking at how do we put our energies? Well, you might be in a parish that's in inner city Baltimore, right? For instance, and there are going to be certain opportunities and challenges that you will have that a church that's in uh, a upper middle class suburb of Illinois right. isn't going to have. Right. So right. it's just about being wise to your situation. I, I don't think that I, I do think sometimes pastors get off track when they start to think strategic planning and they do sometimes forget about the Holy Ghost. Yeah. But um, but I but I also don't think we want the pendulum to swing too far the other direction and just suddenly write off all talk of planning as if that is of the devil. Yep. Yeah, planning is not a, a bad thing or an evil thing, and and we in our uh, zeal for uh, for word and sacrament can actually make not planning into a confession of faith. Yes, and that is um, and, and that's pushing it in the wrong direction too. I mean, that's essentially saying that God does not give His people. Uh, gifts and abilities that are unique to each circumstance. Um, so uh, I have different resources here than a parish in Utah is going to have because it's yeah. a different place. I that's yeah. not that's not rocket surgery, as they say. No, um, no, no. And you and you might have people that let's say are very passionate and skilled and gifted with music and another congregation might not have those same gifts and talents right. so that maybe music is going to have a different, you know, not, I'm not talking about worship war stuff. Right. I'm just talking about people using their gifts and talents in ways that are going to be unique to a situation. Yeah. So one of the dangers as I, as I see looking at strategic planning is that it is, it's very easy and tempting for uh, one person or one group of people, this could be the pastor, this could be somebody else, uh, to kind of uh, hijack the process and and make it into a matter of personal agenda. And because of force of personality, they're just going to barrel through and do what they think is right and best and, and not actually try to uh, work with the community. And that is uh, a, a big danger. Because if you absolutely because if, if you end up in that circumstance, what really is going to be happening is that you're going to start having turf wars, and yeah. and you're going to be fighting about. Okay, well, we can't have something from the youth without having something from stewardship, and we can't have something from stewardship unless we have something from education, and then all of a sudden you've got a thousand goals and no identity. Right. There's nothing there's nothing in the middle of it. So so that's kind of one danger in my mind, at least, is how do we how do we avoid this becoming any one person's kind of personal territory? 
Because pastors can become demagogues. You know, we can be kingdom builders of our own. Absolutely. We have egos, as do all sinful human beings, and maybe even we're more prone to certain types of egocentrism or egotism so that, you know, we want to make sure the ego's at bay. And that's where, to be frank, working as a congregation, the pastor should be a shepherd. He should be a leader. There are times when he should lead and make decisions and help to determine priorities. But if he does it with the with a gentle hand, then, you know, that means the congregation is coming along. It, it won't be unanimous, but you'll have great consensus. And, right. and I think that's just a, a skill and a talent and sometimes just a gift. In my mind, and I don't know, this is probably a little bit of a pipe dream on my part. Um, in my mind, one of the one of the things that is, while not unique to our time, is definitely defining for our time is that pastors go to meetings, lots and lots of meetings. And I can easily despair of meetings-itis. So one of the things that I I feel like I'm constantly thinking about is how do I turn this kind of continual gatherings that, that we have into something that is going to not just be meeting for its own sake, but is going to build up the body of Christ. Yes. And that is yes. and that is true just as much for strategic planning as it is for elders or your or your planning council or parish council or whatever you call it and everything and everything in between. Um and in my mind that's why the the question of identity, Lutheran identity, uh, Christian identity has to be kind of central in this process is if we don't understand ourselves as gathered around God's word and receiving his gifts, praying, praying, and hearing him answer our prayers through his word, if we don't see that as our as our core identity, then we're going to end up going in a thousand directions. And, and it's not going to actually build up the body. Yeah, I think those are good observations. I I tend to think of strategic planning in a congregation as spiritual formation. You know, my role is is not to be the one who, you know, leads all the charge, you know, and makes all the decisions and my way or the highway. But it's about spiritual formation. And so if I'm there to teach to you know, so so if these the way the way to avoid meetings itis and and one way to avoid it being just a bureaucratic enterprise is to keep uh, prayer, keep worship, keep hymn singing, keep those pra- those Christian practices which we identify as spiritual formation, word and sacrament. You know, I think that that's that's when you're going to find uh, real leadership emerge, and you're going to find the congregation kind of getting on board with some of the priorities that you together arrive at, instead of it just saying, "Okay, I'm going to use Robert's rules of order, and we're going to be very effective." And do things like you might do it in the corporate world. But if you right. see strategic planning as spiritual formation and then just allow the mission to develop and emerge from that, I think that that's, that, you know, that's, that's a fairly healthy way to go. I like that. I like that a lot. And that, that does allow us as a congregation to recognize that we learn that things change, but that things also continue. Yep. And those are, I mean, I know that this is kind of duh, but 
I'll tell you, I have spent a lot of years in an awful lot of meetings, Scott. Yeah. And, and it amazes me how often I forget that the purpose of the church is receiving God's gifts. It's yeah. just, I forget it all the time. Yeah. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. You, you and me both, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and thus we live in a culture where, like you said, a lot of times our own parishioners, not that it's their fault, but that they come from a, a corporate world. And so for them, strategic planning has to be very results oriented and very bottom line based. And sometimes within the church, you know, you have to have a more, I don't know what word to use. You just can't be quite that analytical about it. It's not always right. that concrete. The results are not always that concrete. Right. If right. you will. Well, and you know, for instance, we're, as I said, we're in the, in the middle of a strategic plan and it's going, and it's going well, and I've got fantastic leadership. So, you know, that's all good. Um, not surprisingly, us being in a, a, a relatively affluent uh, middle-class community where nearly everybody in the congregation is white collar workers in some capacity or another, our strategic plan process looks very corporate. You know, we've yeah. got a vision statement and a mission statement and objectives and smart goals and, you know, and action plans. And you, you can just sort of follow down the process. Um, and that's all, and that's all fine. I've got no problems mm -hmm. with that. I would be yeah. really curious to see what would a strategic plan look like in a farming community in Kansas. Cause I've never served a farming community in Kansas. I have the faintest idea what something like this would look like. Um, but the context to some degree is certainly going to determine how those sort of things are structured. And it's, Oh, so easy, I think, for pastors to presume because we kind of are the experts at everything, obviously. I mean, <laughs> obviously, that that it has to fit whatever, you know, whatever structure I might have learned. I don't know about you. How many classes on strategic planning did you have in seminary, Scott? I can't think of a single one. Man, me neither. Not a one. I had and, to figure this out on my own. Absolutely. Me too. And, and I don't really think that the seminary should be having um, all sorts of time on this kind of thing because the context is going to vary so much based on where you are that, uh, that it would be nigh unto impossible. What, what we have to think about is what are the theological tools that we bring to the table right. as pastors in order to make However, this kind of is shaped at the at the space and at the time, however, it's shaped that the gospel predominates, that this is about the mercy of Christ given for the world. And if that is not the case, then what do I do when things start to derail? Um, and I have and I have certainly struggled in those kind of meetings, too, where you sort of uh, I know you like horror movies, so you'd probably appreciate this, Scott. Um, yeah. sometimes you can be in a meeting and you feel like you're in a horror movie and you, mm -hmm. you like want to run away and go hide under your bed or something. 
but you can't turn away (laughs) and you're like watching these things unfold and seeing everybody's personalities getting pushed to the worst possible place that they could be. And you're like, no, don't. Oh, you just said it. Really? We're going to be here for another hour and a half. Um, And, and in the middle of those kind of things as a pastor, I think that I have a couple options. One is, for me to kind of wade in, get mad, you know, just kind of be one of the guys, so to speak, in this process and slog through it and know that because I'm right, then everything is going to be, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make sure that my will predominates in this. I don't really think that's all that helpful. Um, and so somehow as a pastor, I have to learn how to step back from the process and breathe and recognize that what I am here to do is to bring Christ and Christ's mercy and not and not to make sure that the plan is exactly what I want it to be. Because there are all kinds of plans in my mind that may not be what I want, but also are not contrary to the scriptures. And and I don't know, somewhere in yeah. there is yeah. a is is a balance of wisdom and i look forward to seeing it as it whooshes past me sometime well you know we have to slay the old adam we have to kill our egos yeah i think a lot of i think a lot of us a lot of our colleagues pastors our compadres um get frustrated with the ministry because and there's a lot of reasons and the devil is at work for sure but I think that one of the reasons that we tend to get frustrated as pastors is sometimes because we are put into congregations and we are expected or asked to do tasks that we have no preparation to do. We, we, we're not trained how to do certain no types of tasks. No expertise. Yeah. No, right. no plan. <laughs> we we no. do... We, we do spend some time, right, we do spend some time in our undergraduate and in our seminary time learning how to write, how to yep. construct sermons, how to, how to lead liturgy, how to, you know, we, we do learn certain skills sure. in, in, in ministry training. And while I hate to even hear myself say it because I see the abuses, but I think we need to somehow see... Uh, Shall I, shall I use the word leadership? I don't know. We need to somehow inculcate skills better into our pastors so that when they are asked to be pastor, give us some leadership. We, we're ready. We're sheep. We're ready to, we're ready to be led that, that the pastor has some kind of training in terms of, okay, how do I organize volunteers? How do I run meetings right. effectively? How do I help people uh, write down goals and, and, and come up with action plans. Sometimes our pastors learn this because they were in secular professions before they went right. to the seminary. Right. And sometimes like myself, they just grab a bunch of books off the library and try to become self-learn, uh, yeah. self-educated. Well, I think um, one of the, one of the dirty secrets of, of the ministry that we very often fail to recognize because we are so deeply enmeshed in the in the middle of it we're we're because we're so deeply in it we can't see it is that is that there is this core identity of who a pastor is what a, and what a pastor does and that core identity is always in I'll say lively tension with the culture around us yeah so right. for instance the pastor in 21st century america is going to look very different 
than the pastor in 18th century America, where he would probably be the only person in a community that had an advanced degree or a pastor in the third century in the early church when the pastor is, is going to be the dispenser of physical mercy as much as he is uh, the word and sacrament because there's no, there's no healthcare system. There's no nothing. And, and depending on the time, depending on the circumstances, the location, the political structure of the day, all of those things are in tension with what this office of pastor looks like at a given time and place. And, and, and I think that there's, I don't know. Are you, you know, the term repristination, you're kind of a repristinator, I figure. So. I, I, I know the term. You've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He says sarcastically. Um, yes. It, it is very easy for us as pastors to repristinate or think back to a certain golden era of whatever and assume that the problems that pastors have now are, you know, it was better in the 1950s. And I'm sure that it was in some respects. I'm also sure that it was a lot worse in some respects. Um, but if I try to simply import carte blanche, everything from any given period without recognizing my context, I am in big, big trouble. And that's what wisdom is, I think, is figuring out what is the what is at the core and what is the context and how do those two relate to each other? Does that make any sense? Oh, very well put. Yeah, I agree. I think we do tend to produce repristinators um, in our in our circle, at least. And I'm guilty of it at times. But you're right. We can't just sort of take the approach from, say, the 1890s and think that, you know, without any kind of sense of context that we're going to be able to be that be Walter. It's just CFW Walter. It's just not going to work. Well, I mean, and I think like, again, if you're looking at Puritanism, uh, early America, middle America, that kind of that kind of period, let's say from the 17th to the 19th century, the pastor often in one respect is coming from Europe is coming from what was much more a, uh, an educated sort of quasi academic life and approach. Mm-hmm. And then moving into an area and a space, first of all, that is just physically so much larger. And then secondly, uh, America has from its almost from its very beginnings had this profoundly uh, anti-authoritarian strand in our DNA. And uh, as a result, uh, I sometimes am the pastor is going to be at odds with that. I, I, I've actually thought about this a lot. One of my favorite books, I don't think we've talked about it is, is this book called the democratization of American Christianity by Nathan Hatch. Have you ever read that book, Scott? No, but I I I haven't read it, but I'm familiar with the title, man. It is such a great book because what he does is essentially look at how the American uh, physical landscape, political landscape, economic landscape, and all of these things interfaced with Christianity 
and how Christianity in America took on this much more um, sort of top down uh, or not top down, but took on this approach where the pastor could not be the authority figure, kind of the quasi academic. He's the the teacher that, Mm -hmm. that would have been much more common in Europe and had to become basically an entrepreneur. He had to persuade his hearers to follow him because they weren't automatically put into a parish. They had to decide, am I going to go to the Methodist church or the Baptist church or the weird Lutheran church where they only speak German? And as a result, the pastor turns uh, just the very basic identity of the pastor changes. And man, oh man, you want to talk about uh, helping us, I think, to understand where we fit or don't fit today, I think something like that looks at it. And then just to circle back around so we can pretend like we're talking about one thing here. uh, And then you sort of put that into strategic planning. Now, all of a sudden the strategic plan somehow or another, every strategic church plan that I've ever seen is going to have at its core growth more members, oh, sure. more money, sure. um, maybe more property, more, more something. And that that is, and, and obviously I'm not, I'm not opposed to gaining members, duh. But if my approach to that is entrepreneurial to the point of mercenary, yeah. then how I look at that strategic plan is going to is going to be dramatically different than what it may have looked like even 50 years ago. And it I don't know, there's a there's an awful lot to think about. And I think this is why at least for me, why I have a hard time paying attention sometimes in strategic planning meetings. Um don't tell my administrator that. Just because I'm thinking about how all of these things fit together. And am I the persuader? Am I the am I the teacher? Am I the what does leader mean in this place? Yeah. yeah. What does it mean to be a shepherd in this particular setup? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's being a pastor is hard work. It it is. And I wish that it was a little bit clearer on what what the expectations were sometimes. Hmm. I'm with you. That's yeah. kind of our theme. That is kind of our theme. Indeed. So <laughs> um, I did want to uh, just because it's such a it's such a great quote. I wanted to uh, wanted to point out a quotation from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, this uh, uh, this Lutheran pastor during World War Two, who was martyred right at the end of the war. Uh, one of his most familiar books, at least to me, is the book Life Together. And he has a. Um, Here's a quote that uh, that I sometimes use. It's it's easy to over it's easy to overuse it, but I'll uh, but let me read it real quick. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. 
When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser, an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. You know what I love, what strikes me the most about that quote, and I've, I've read it a few times in my sure. life, is this was, when did he write Life Together? I mean, we're talking about a book that was 30s. probably written, what, yeah, or 1939 yeah. or something like yeah. that. You know, and in Germany, you know, this is not 20, 21st century America with, nope. the, with the churches that are, you know, halfway more business business oriented than they are spiritual oriented. You know, but the problem was the same. He, he put his finger right on it. Right. Now, I would suggest that the 1930s Germany kind of had its um, had visionary dreamers in a very different way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I suspect you're right. And maybe but, he doesn't mean everything we think he means. Well, I, I, yes and no. I do think that he's looking at this and saying, okay, how do I I yeah. mean, that's how do I fall into this trap of believing that my own vision of this place has to be the only vision. And that's and as a pastor, that's something that I have to constantly be reminded of is that it is not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about my vision for this place. It is about bringing the gospel to hurting sinners in this place, because that is where God has placed me. If I forget that, then we can have all the plans in the world and it's not going to matter. Amen. 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 So now we will pause for station identification. Wait a minute. We're not on a station. That doesn't make any sense. Um, But you can find our show notes at the crux of the matter dot net slash podcast slash 22 and i would encourage you to do so i'll i'll have this bonhoeffer quote in there and a link to uh a link to the nathan hatch book a few other things along the way and i think that it will be a benefit so um next uh we don't have anybody that we're going to call friend of the show this week at least i don't do you have anybody scott no no No. friends okay we don't have any friends this week that's okay um but uh, at this point, we are we are at the what's bringing joy section. This is kind of a section where we we talk about something that is giving us joy this week or making us making us think and reflect on what it means to be a pastor at a given time and place. So, Scott, what's bringing you joy? Well, um, I've, I'm going to name a podcast and this is a podcast produced by a journal that I really enjoy that many of our listeners know. And that's First Things, First Things Journal. So if you are a subscriber to that or if you occasionally read it or if you just simply are appreciative of the work that it tries to do at times, I really recommend that you go onto the iTunes site or go onto their website and start listening to their podcast. They've only been doing it for a few months. They don't have very many and they're not doing it every week. They seem to be a little haphazard about when they post. Um, uh, my only complaint about it is that they don't do enough of them. Um, they're about an hour long, hour, 15 minutes long. And what they've been doing, they don't have like editors who kind of sit down and do what we're doing and just sort of kibitz about a topic, but rather first things journal often will have, they will host 
speakers and, and various symposia and they just record some of those things and, mm. and post them. They're very good. I just today listened to um, uh, Jonathan Sachs, who's the retired chief rabbi of Great Britain, um, about being a creative minority. What is it like to be in a world as a Christian or a Jew in a, in a world that is secular and pagan? And it was brilliant. I want to listen to it over and over again. Yeah, Jonathan Sachs. He was just terrific rabbi. Um, so, you know, it's not going to be, you know, it's not all confessional Lutheranism, but it's always going to be something thought provoking and about living the Christian life or the religious life, at least in the public square, religion in the public square being founder, John, Richard John Newhouse's sort of main theme. How can the religious person exhibit and live his, his faith in the public square, in the marketplace without having to be shuttled off, off to the margins. So this is a very good podcast. Every topic I've listened, I've listened to them all. There's not that many yet and they're all very good. But if you want to, to dive in, listen to the most recent one, which is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Great Britain. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. That, uh, very cool. Uh, maybe I can uh, drag myself out of all of the tech podcasts I listened to for a while and exercise my brain in a different way. That'd probably be yeah. useful anyways. So yeah. I have um I have two joy bringers this week. Uh and since you're doing a podcast, I'll do a book. How about that? Sweet. Um, yeah. Uh the first is a book called Against Happiness in Praise of Melancholy. Uh written by a man named Eric Wilson. Uh Eric Wilson is a uh, professor of English at Wake Forest in uh Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And, and what he does is, as an English professor, uh, let me just read a little of the jacket here. Americans are addicted to happiness. When we're not popping pills, we're leafing through recent scientific studies that take for granted our quest for happiness or reading self-help books by everyone from armchair philosophers and clinical psychologists to the Dalai Lama on how to achieve a trouble-free life. Um, and he goes on and basically says and argues that we have – uh, we have somehow or another taken a pill, so to speak, that has made it so that we are forgetting that melancholy is a part of our identity as human beings. And that in order to be truly human, there needs to be both joy and sorrow, happiness and sadness. And if I see the eradication of of sadness and sorrow as kind of my my goal in life that I may actually be cutting out some of the most important parts of my life. Um, and, and he goes in and into history, philosophy, literature, art, and time and time and time again, he, he gives examples of how uh, many, if not most of the great artists of, of all sorts of different genres in our, in our history come from people who struggled with melancholy, with despair, um, and with sadness, depression, all sorts of things. And, uh, and it is just a fascinating book, a really interesting read, short book, 150 pages, maybe. Um, and it, it's very different from, from a, it's not a psychological sort of self-help book or something like that. It is, it's almost, it's almost a rant against the American <laughs> pursuit of happiness as a goal. And uh, I'm yeah. all for a good rant. So it's a, it's really an interesting book. Well, it sounds like it. And it sounds like it's just a different 
complexity or, or, or twist on some, one of our, one of our themes. I mean, we tend to talk about, uh, depressiveness and and depression and, and so forth. And, you know, melancholy, it, it, it sounds like he's not talking about mental illness, but he's talking about this sort of obsessive quest to be, have pleasure all the time or to be happy yeah. all the time. Yeah. It's, That's neat. it's really, it's remarkable. Well, one of the, one of the insights that, that again, I've, I think I've known before, but he did a really good job of putting it into words is if my desire for happiness, but kind of takes on this almost neurotic pursuit, then uh, and in the same way, if my desire for uh, to be a, as a cynic, to to only and exclusively look at things in a negative way, what that's actually doing is saying, I don't want to actually be a part of Earth. I I'm not I'm not willing to live in the paradox of life net here and now, and life here and now means joy and sorrow. That there are ups and downs, and that humanity is found not so much in the highs and the lows, but in the day to day. How do we how do we navigate through these canyons and valleys and and mountains, and and it, he the, the book I don't think he's a Christian, um, but I kept thinking throughout the book that what he has read and seen in kind of um, Norman Vincent Peale slash mm. Billy Graham sort of Christianity is this kind of obsessive positivism. What he has not seen is the theology of the cross. Yeah. What he has not seen is, uh, I'll say, authentic Lutheranism. And if he mm-hmm. did, I think he might find it very appealing. Interesting. Yeah. What's his name? Uh, the name of the author is Eric Wilson. Yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes to it. Second cool. one is um, The second one is a fiction book that I just finished, stayed up way too late last night reading it, Don't Tell My Wife. And uh, and the name of that book is The Martian by Andy Weir. Uh, There was a a trailer that just came out this week that this book is being made into a movie and it'll be out in like November. Uh, And this book is essentially the premise is what would it be like if somebody got stranded on Mars as an astronaut? And the uh, the author uh, Weir is kind of a uh, I'll say a science nerd and a space nerd. And so he he produces this book that is of a uh, an astronaut that has been accidentally stranded where all of his uh, his fellow crew believed that he was dead and then and they leave and he is then stranded there in this uh, this habitat that was designed to be uh, to be used for 30 days to take soil samples and all the other things that astronauts do. Um, only he has to figure out how to stay alive for four years because that's wow. if they even find out about him, um, that's how long it's going to take for him, uh, for them to get back to him. And so how do you, how do you expand the things that are designed for 30 days in an incredibly hostile environment, which does not sustain life on its own? How do you make that into something that will last for four years? It's an amazing book. And, uh, so it's a pretty cool book. Oh, it's a great book. I couldn't put it down, Scott. It's really interesting. And I, I mean, and it's kind of following 
a, a theme that you're going to see a lot in literature or in fiction. You know, this is man against nature. I mean, the, mm-hmm. you could almost you could imagine Jack London writing something like this today. Um, or what was that? What was that crazy movie that Tom Hanks was in years ago? Do you remember that um, where he was stranded on the island and, you know, it made the volleyball into his god? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't, well, I can't remember um, the name of it. I don't know. He was a castaway. I don't remember castaway. the name of it. I think that's the name of it. Was that but, the name of the film? I think so. But, um, you know, that kind of man against man against nature is a, is pretty common theme. And this is a, a new twist on it. And uh, mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed it. So if you uh, if you need a good escape, the language is horrific, but the um, uh, very coarse language, but the the concepts behind the book are very very interesting, and I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. it was a lot oh, of I love I, lo- I love I love a good yarn, and 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 I love science fiction. But here's my question, real quick. Yeah. Um, as science fiction, is it kind of hard science? I mean, do you really have to be into the science element to it or is well, it mostly I am that's a, just sort of the pretext? I am about as far removed from a, a hard scientist as you're likely to find. And and I found it thoroughly engrossing. Having said Great. that, um, it, it, this book has kind of an interesting history because he originally published this himself. It was self-published. He just did it as a serial uh, that he published on his on his web page on his blog, and kept having more and more people asking him if he would put it in a book form. So he put it out on Amazon as a Kindle book, and then in the span of a week, it went from uh, being a hardbound cover book. And the same week, he was offered uh, uh, to license it as a movie, and then it's- it sh- it shot up as as a New York Times bestseller. So this is kind of your classic rags to riches story. But a part of what's interesting about this is that astronauts, physicists, people that work on, you know, rocket scientists reading this mm-hmm. book and saying your science is, is fantastic. And this here's one thing that you got wrong and sending them a 10 page proof on why this trajectory wasn't quite right. That sort of thing. <laughs> and then he corrects it and puts it in the book. <laughs> nice. So, yeah. So the, I, I think that the more science minded would probably find it even more interesting than I did. That's awesome. I'm, yeah. I'm going to look for it. Yeah. It's, it's worth it. Now, of course, that you're at uh, Concordia Irvine and have this huge thing called a library and you're uh, at your disposal. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you might actually be able to slightly lower your book budget. I bet Julie would like that. <laughs> I'm going to try. That, that has definitely been one of my efforts. That's of one late. of your efforts. I'll believe it yeah. when I see it. Yeah. Anyway, any uh, final words for our dear listener, Scott? No, just simply that we would love it if you give us some feedback. We enjoy it. We always read it and we take it into consideration. So if you have any suggested topics or if you have any commentary, please send us a note. Awesome. That would be very good. We're going to do our best to uh, to keep the uh, keep the show going on a weekly basis through the summer. Uh, this is about the time when things are going to start to get haywire while I'm on vacation and, and you're starting a uh, you're starting a class and then moving and everything. We're going to do our best and. Uh, We'll see if we can pull it off. All right. So very good. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Goodbye.